Welcome to The Leaders Who Care, a podcast powered by Dynamis Group. We are here to give the stage and support to those committed to create a positive and lasting impact, way beyond the profits and margins, the leaders of the world who care for others and serve a bigger purpose. Join us on the journey of creating a better, more caring world. And now to your host, Stoyan Yankov. everyone and welcome to episode 31 of the leaders who care i'm honored and privileged to be having today with me somebody i've met uh, back in 2014 at a conference in norway and ever since have been uh, meaning to invite her to a format that we have and today i have a pleasure to to interview her for the for the platform robin benincasa who's an exceptional performer she's a firefighter she's a two times world champion in adventure racing. And these are just part of the things that she's doing. So Robin, instead of me introducing you, why don't you introduce yourself and give us a bit of a context about who you are, where do you come from and what's your focus today? Oh boy. Um, well, I, uh, I hate woofing on myself. So I'll give you the, <laughs> the short and sweet version. Um, let's see what got me to here. Um, I, uh, I kind of grew up doing a ton of different sports from gymnastics and diving and track and, you know, and then triathlon. And, and um, then I discovered a sport called adventure racing. And I went from being a total like solo athlete to being in a team sport. And the, the change in the dynamic that came with that and the synergy that was involved in that sport to get to the finish line and, and not just get to the finish line, but win these races um, was something that I was just so inspired by and uh, just inspired by my teammates and the love they showed each other and the lack of ego and, you know, and just the commitment, you know, against all odds to get to the finish line. And, you know, kind of for me, that was the, um, where I sort of turned the corner and said, you know what, I was, a, I was a soloist, but now I see really this team synergy as the way forward, like in the world, you know, whatever your goal is. Um, whether it's climbing a mountain or starting a business or whatever it may be, you know, the key is to surround yourself with amazing people who like truly and deeply believe in you, believe in the mission, can think as we, um, and, you know, understand that, that people are going to lead based on their different strengths and all these amazing things we learn in adventure racing. And, um, and I sort of took that and not only brought it to my career as a firefighter, but then also, um, sort of by accident, got recruited to uh, to speak at a Fast Company magazine event because um, they did an article about extreme teamwork and they included our adventure racing team in the article. And their focus was trying to figure out like what made some of the world's most consistently high performing teams, um, you know, as as consistent as they were at the top of their game. And so they interviewed our team and a team from Industrial Light and Magic and a team from NASA. And it was a really cool article about. Um, extreme teamwork. And they asked me to speak at this conference and I thought I was going to die. And uh, I got up in front of, because I'm like a total introvert and I got up in front of all these people at this conference. And, and um, it was just, you know, magic to watch like the light bulbs go on for people. And um, like, I never thought of leadership like this. I never saw teamwork like this. Like a lot of people think that teamwork's just walking side by side towards a common goal, but we proved in, in adventure racing that that's, that's not it at all. That's part of it. But real teamwork is carrying each other, towing each other, loving each other, you know, leaving your ego at the start line and taking your full collective strength and doing the very best you can with that every step of the way. And so that's what I do now. I'm a team builder. Um, and I, you know, not only do that as a firefighter, but, um, you know, talking to whoever wants me to come out and play and talk about this amazing synergy and how we create that and how we succeed against all odds in times of incredible challenge and change. And um, yeah. And so it's, it's a little bit ironic that I went from like my start being a total soloist to a total turnaround to say solo is good, but it's not going to get you to where you want to go. And you have huge, hairy, audacious, ridiculous goals. Like we all should have. It's really interesting. You mentioned at your first speech, 
you were so scared, you thought you're gonna die. I, I watched some YouTube videos with you doing this adventure racing, and I thought just by watching, I'm gonna die. Like, <laughs> and, and I think people who are listening right now, they, they probably don't have a context about this. So could you, before we go into this whole team building and leadership, share with the audience um, a little bit about this sport, what is interesting about it, and, and how did you actually get passionate about joining this very extreme sport? Um, well, I was, I was lucky in a way in sort of that, you know, luck that happens where opportunity meets preparation. <laughs> so, so I, um, I had done Ironman triathlon for a, a number of years. And so I had about 10 of those under my belt and, um, I, I kind of stumbled upon adventure racing. I read about it in runner's world. There was only one American team doing it at the time. And it was Mark Burnett's team. And if you recognize his name, you probably have watched Survivor or recently Eco Challenge on TV. He's the guy who started Survivor. He was an adventure racer back in the day. He also started Eco Challenge, which was the biggest adventure race. And um, and he had the only American team ever to enter this sport. And so I remember I was reading this article and I had that like lightning bolt moment, like this is what I was meant to do. Like, because Iron Man wasn't long enough for me. And I don't mean that in a, in like a, because I wasn't very fast, but I could keep going. So I was like, I just need something longer, like something really stupid, like really ridiculous, like just off the charts endurance wise. And then I saw, I read the article about adventure racing and I just went, I like, I, I literally, I just remember like going, that's it. You know, like the light bulb just went on. And so I started just seeking out, you know, people that were going to the next tryout to be on Mark Burnett's team. And there was a guy at my gym who's a Navy SEAL who happened to be one of the guys that was coming to facilitate this tryout to be the woman on the, you know, the American team to go. But um, I'll give you kind of the scoop about what it is. It's um, a sport was invented by a crazy Frenchman who is fantastic, a guy named Gerard Fusil. And um, he was trying to mimic the Whitbread round the world sailing race, but on land. And so his idea was to, and I will always um, be grateful to him for this part of the rules in that um, you had to have mixed gender teams. You know, otherwise we would have never really discovered how how strong women are in this sport because of course, and I wouldn't fault him for it, but a lot of the guys be like, well, let's just get four of the best guys. Like, why would you, you know, why would you really pick a, a girl until and unless we knew and we discovered that it was usually the girls that were stronger near the end of the race and able to carry more weight and keep the team going. And like, we never would have really known that, um, you know, but so you have to have mixed gender teams and the race director will say, Hey, meet us on a high plane in Tibet on May 3rd. And they'll give each team a set of maps and road rules. And you have to chart your own course. And it's usually 600 to a thousand miles long. And in, in the old school adventure races, it was totally nonstop. Like occasionally there'd be what, what's called a dark zone where if it was class four whitewater or something, they didn't want you to do it at three o'clock in the morning. So you'd have to wait until the sun came up. But generally it was all on you, whether you, whether you stopped, whether you ate, whether you raced, whatever you and your team did was completely up to you, in, including the navigation. So you have to navigate your way, usually seven to 10 days nonstop, 600,000 miles, and you know navigating your way through 25 or 30 checkpoints and whoever gets to the finish line first wins easy peasy and and along the way you you see your crew a few times usually where you're changing sports so like you'll go from mountain biking to whitewater rafting or you'll go from running to mountain biking or whatever it is and that's where you have your gear and you know your crew lays out your gear and um you dive into your box and open a can of chili and try to <laughs> try to get it into your body and <laughs> I mean, it's total mayhem. And, what was, um, how long did you how did long did you sleep uh, during the you, you had two world uh, world titles, right? What was the age, average sleep that you have per night when you when you were racing? Um, it kind of like well, we discovered no sleep is bad. We discovered that the hard <laughs> way. Um, and and uh, yeah, the first adventure race we did, we tried to go three days without sleep, but we made it. But then we walked around in circles in a field for seven hours, having no idea who we were, where we were. We all completely lost each other, like a half a mile apart. You know, it was a nightmare. So we discovered that you have to get about an hour and a half of sleep 
every 24 hours, you know, just to get like one or two REM cycles in there for your brain to be able to operate. But generally we'd be racing like 22 something hours a day if you wanted to win. Yeah. And, and you mentioned something really interesting that usually you discover that women are the ones that the, the last phases of the competition are the ones that are more resilient and they're kind of pushing the win forward. Can you elaborate maybe on that? Uh, you know what? We would have n never really known it unless we were going that long. I think there's something in our physiology that um, that's protective in a way. And, and I think some of it is the fact that we don't lose weight. <laughs> so, like the, the guys would like lose like 15 or 20 pounds over a race. I would lose none. Zero, not one pound. And I mean, most of the girls too. And like, there's something weirdly protective in our, in our bodies, in our fat layers, um, you know, whatever that is, like we would sort of just stay like this, the whole race in terms of our energy. In fact, I would, I would kind of do this. I would, I would go up near the end and the guys would start it really strong and then just kind of slowly as they lost a lot of weight and strength, you know, sometimes they would need some more help. So I was usually the person that was like on a tow line, you know, right off the, right out of the gates, but as the race went on near the end, I was often the person that was, you know, definitely carrying my own pack, maybe some more stuff helping, you know, I wasn't, I wasn't our team's best navigator, but I was like truly like driven competitively. I was our, one of our strategists usually. And so, you know, it was sort of on me in a lot of cases, you know, near the end to in the middle to keep, to keep people rallied. And, but everyone just, I mean, that's the beauty of it. It's like, I would fall apart sometimes and then someone else would step up and then they would fall apart and then and then I would step up or some other teammate would step up and and that's just how you roll you know like on a on a world class team it's like there's no egos allowed and strength is completely collective energy is completely collective um and and you know if you're sucking like one of the one of the reasons I loved racing with the the Australians and New Zealanders is because they never brought their egos with them. It was amazing. Like if they were sucking, they would literally go, mate, I'm sucking, you know, <laughs> you know, so like we could like gather around and help or whatever. And, and it's so much better to say that than to just completely fall apart, you know, and, and maybe drop out of the race because one of the other rules was that you, you were disqualified the minute you lost one teammate. So mm. you had to cross finish line with everyone or you were disqualified. And that of course leads me to a question. Was there a situation, I'm sure there were a lot of stories, but the first story that comes to mind of a huge struggle, huge challenge that you personally had, that you had to overcome during a race, how did you manage to put yourself up in the midst of the biggest crisis? Oh, um, I think, you know, a lot of, you know, ultimately a lot of your deep, deep, deep strength comes from not wanting to let your teammates down. You know, like I can't be the person that disqualifies this team. Like I will, I will literally go to the edge of my existence to ensure that I can keep putting one foot in front of the other. And, you know, so there were a number of times where I was, you know, this close to not necessarily like raising my hand and quitting, but like being so jacked up that <laughs> the race director is like, <laughs> a human being can't keep going like this you know so so uh god there was a time in, in norway where i crawled for about 14 hours um because i couldn't walk uh there was a time in ecuador where um we had to summit a 19,700 foot active volcano um in the middle of the race on day three with no sleep and um, I had 104 fever and my O2 sat was less than 70 when, when the doctors, well, it was 71 at, at a hut at 15,000 feet, but I got to 18,000 feet. I was definitely way less than 70 and I was on the ground and crying and wondering how I was going to roll it back down to the hut and, you know, go to the hospital or, you know, whatever needed to happen. But I just knew I couldn't. I couldn't keep going. I wanted to, but I, you know, and then I had a teammate come over to me and say, 
Rob, we have to have three people finish or we're out of the race. And, and John and I, it was, it was my team captain, Robert Nagley said, John and I are being told we have high altitude pulmonary edema and we have to go down from 18,000 feet. And so our even finishing this race is now 100,000% completely up to you. Cause I had to go up. No pressure. <laughs> and I just remember just like, and then he took, but he looked at me and he said, you can do it, Rob, you can do it, Rob. And when he said that, I just, I have this like a snapshot on my brain of like his face saying, you can do it, Rob. And, you know, all of a sudden I stopped crying and I started like, you know, I, but God, and this isn't, this is on video. It's all, cause I don't remember any of it. I've only seen it. <laughs> I had no oxygen in my brain. And uh, I just start like nodding, like, yes, I'm, I'm going to do this. And I stood up and like my whole camelback was completely frozen. Like we had water in, in at least six, eight hours at that point, And we still had to get to the summit and back down. I mean, we're completely dehydrated. When I got, when I did get back down, I had 104 fever, um, you know, and, and, you know, Oh, yeah, we should have all been going to the hospital, honestly, but, <laughs> but it was, <laughs> we all had, we all had issues, but I was the worst and um, I was blue. And, uh, but I just remember thinking Robert said, I can do this. And, and like, I have to do it for him. I have to do it for him and John and, and for the rest of the team. And that's all I remember thinking. And, and the only way I knew that I did it was because it's on video, but that was sort of my last memory of, but I, we, the three of us made it to the top and, and continued on in the race and actually ended up winning. And to, today, wow. the longest, toughest adventure race, um, that most people, like most people would say that, that the Ecuador raid was the, cause it was nine days for the win, for the win. So there were people out there 12, 13 days. Yeah. And, and we had to, to summit the 19,700 foot volcano. Yeah, in the middle of it. So, I mean, but, you know, in the real world, I would, you know, I would have been leaving on a stretcher, but just the the power of someone else believing in you that much, it's, it literally overcame my physiology and mm. put it in my head that I belong with these guys. You know, I belong on, on the best team in the world. And it happened like that. This is such an exceptional point and not just for people who are competing in sports, but I think people also being in business, how do we create teams where people care so much for the bigger purpose and for each other that they will do whatever it takes to, to make it happen. They will endure any challenges. And uh, Robin, you have written a best-selling book called How Winning Works. And it's based around a framework. Could you maybe lead us quickly through uh, what is teamwork? What does it stand for? And um, why is this important in, in, in winning? So, yeah, it's, it's uh, you know, back when Fast Company asked me to, to speak, they were like, we need you to talk about, like, what is it that made your team great, you know, and led to your consistency. And, and it was one of those, like, kind of cool moments where I sat down to start, like, writing what it was. And all of a sudden, you know, aside from, you know, one or two of them, but all of a sudden I, I looked down and I was like, oh my God, this is, this is an acronym for teamwork. Are you kidding me? <laughs> and it was just, it was so cool. Like it just like completely came together. And so it, at first it was called the, like the essential elements of human synergy. And, um, you know, but I've also called it like the essential elements of extreme performance or, but it really is those, those eight elements that are almost like a spine they're almost like vertebrae on a spine where if they're all fully aligned on your team, you have that stability, you have that power, you have that trust, you know, and you, you ha you're going to be extremely successful. But if one of them is out of alignment, you know, you have to take a long look at it and fix that. And that's what the book is about is like, how do you, um, how do you recognize these eight essential elements? How do you create these eight essential elements and how do you fix them? You know, when they're, when they're not in line. And so, um, the acronym is, uh, again, it's teamwork. And the T is total commitment. The E is, which is to each other and to the finish line. Um, empathy and awareness. You know, you have to have that human connection, you know, to, to one another. You have to be able to put yourself in each other's shoes. You have to constantly be aware of how people are thinking, feeling. You know, it's, 
you, know, you have to have one heart and one mind, you know, basically. Um, the A is adversity management skills, you know, and, and how do you handle like the craziest, toughest times and adapt, overcome and innovate and, you know, and continue to win. And that, that section is a lot about our team's like ability to, to really innovate. That was the hallmark of our team was um, taking some of the tools that we were given, like that all the teams were given and doing something totally different with them than, than what was intended. And, and all the times we would do things like, um, you know, we were, if we were given two inflatable canoes, I had a really smart teammate named Steve Gurney out of New Zealand. And he was like, let's just take our climbing rope and tie these two canoes together and not just do two separate canoes, but do an end to end canoe like this. And so tie our two boats together, make one big one so that we have all our full power of all five of us at the same time. And let's not use these canoe paddles that we were given. Let's get out our kayak paddles. And, you know, there's, there's, they're two different sports, but because they were canoes, we were given canoe paddles and we're like, what the hell? Let's just get, we're, we're better at kayaking. Why wouldn't we just like get our kayak paddle? And no one had ever thought to do that before. And so just little things like that. Um, he also invented um, uh, pulling, pulling kayaks with a, with a kite surfing kite. He figured out how to do that too. He, he trained and trained and trained and he, he got to the point where he could pull two kayaks or two whatevers, two boats with a kite surfing kite. So he would carry a little kite surf, well, big, it's like <laughs> three, three to nine feet, depending on the day, but he'd carry a kite surfing kite. And when it got windy, he would pop it out there and, and literally pull kayaks or boats across a lake while everybody ate and slept. And like, just these kind of like crazy competitive advantages that this guy thought of all the time. So, so that section of adversity management is all about like, how do we innovate? How do we adapt? What about our mindset? Like, are we ruled by the hope of success or the fear of failure? And, you know, and how that changes things. Um, the M is uh, mutual respect, you know, and how do we constantly build that foundation of trust and respect with each other? Because if your foundation is built, you can have all these little weird things going on, on the surface and it doesn't matter. You can have all these little arguments and snippy things and, you know, we're all human beings. But if your foundation is built, you never have to worry about those things, you know, because you have built that trust and respect with one another, you know, that no one can really penetrate. And so that, that section is about how to build that mutual respect. Um, we thinking versus me thinking, which is that whole idea of, you know, that African proverb, if you want to go fast, go alone. If you want to go far, go together. And, um, you know, I think a lot of people see that as sharing each other's strengths, but I also see that and probably more importantly, sharing each other's challenges. Um, which a lot of people don't feel comfortable doing. Um, and then ownership of the project, you know, that total buy-in um, of, of the organization's goals or the team's goals and um, relinquishment of ego, <laughs> leaving your ego at the start line. <laughs> like our team always said, like, it's the heaviest thing in your pack. You can't bring it on the race course with you. Like it, it really is of no use to you, you know, aside from wrapping your, your ego around your team's success. But when it comes to like your personal ego, ditch, you know, it's, it's too heavy, um, you know, and how to do the asking for help and accepting help and, and giving away the credit to your teammates and all these just little tips and tricks that, that show your team, this isn't about me, you know, this is about us winning this race and then kinetic leadership, um, meaning like leadership that flows and changes in terms of like changing, literally changing leaders, which we did all the time. Like I think in a lot of organizations, it's this top down leadership thing where it's like, this person has the title or this person, like in the fire department, we talk about who has the bugles or who has the gold badge, you know, and, but they're not always the person who has the answers in the moment. You know, like we have a team captain, but they were only a quarter of the good ideas, you know, or the strength or the, the ability to navigate or, you know, being awake while three other people were asleep. <laughs> so, you know, that, that constantly change and then changing leadership styles, you know, realizing who you need to be as a leader in the moment. Like, does someone just like need a friend? Does someone need a kick in the ass? Does someone need, you know, does someone need a, a, a friend, you know, or, or do they need like someone to be really directive, someone to tell me what to do right now. Um, and, and the best leaders can seamlessly weave in and out of a bunch of different leadership styles, you know, based on what their team needs, you know, in the moment. And if you have all those things on your team, you're going to, you're going to kill it, whatever your goal is. Is that, is that the way you are, structuring your workshops your work with uh, these leaders when you go to organization you measure how they're performing in each of these areas and 
And based on that, you kind of set up some strategies to improve, or is there any other methodology you use when you are when you're starting to work in an organization? Yeah, I mostly do keynotes, but some people have asked for, you know, for workshops like that. And so I actually created a little thing called a, uh, a team builder topography where people answer questions about, it's almost like a, um, it's a 360 analysis of your team. And so I ask you a bunch of questions about like your commitment to the finish line. And you say like, do I, do I highly agree or not agree with this sentence? You know, so it's like, <laughs> it's like a cos a cosmopolit cosmo magazine quiz, you know, kind of where it's like you answer all these different questions about that particular concept, and then you get a score based on that. And so at the end of this, I do it for each of the eight essential elements. People will answer questions like, um, my my manager cares more about my performance than you know than their own, you know, things like that. Like to kind of you know figure out like what's going on in your organization. And when it comes to these eight essential elements, and then at the end, they um, they actually have a, a bar graph of each of the eight essential elements about where they stood, you know, with their score, and they can see like we're great at commitment, we suck at <laughs> at managing challenge and change, or we don't think as we, or you know, we have too many egos in this organization, and so they can look at their lowest three, uh, you know, their lowest three on the bar graph, and say, you know, let's work on these. Let's, you know, let's look at those chapters again. And at the end of each chapter, I have, you know, ways to increase your that particular essential element. Got it. Got it. And the whole podcast, of course, is called "The Leaders Who Care." So I'm actually curious to hear from you. What does it mean to you, a caring leader? You know, a lot of people feel care is this soft word right it's it's something soft and and being caring in some places even perceived as a weakness what does it mean for you to have a culture of care in an organization um i mean i think bottom line like across the board just just in in my own experience like with with the fire department with my own nonprofit, with my other little company with with, with my speaking company it's it's um a, I think you're a caring leader if you if you choose extremely wisely in terms of your team, so that everyone is truly there, not just with each other but for each other. Um, and then I think, like, if at the end of the day, like I, I've always kind of said, like, we don't inspire people by showing them how amazing we are. We inspire people by showing them how amazing they are. And to me, that's a great leader is I am here to facilitate your success because your success in my eyes is my success. And when, like when I run our project Athena adventures, which, which we can talk about in a second, but um, you know, I'm always, I'm, I'm very rarely the person out in front saying, you know, unless we're lost, <laughs> but like you're the person out in front saying like, I'm follow me. I'm the strong one. You know, I'm always the person that is, facilitating everybody's success but but my ego in terms of, of you know is wrapped around their success you know like like watching not doing something for people but saying here's all the tools you know that you need to succeed and I want to facilitate your success you know I want to I want to put you on my shoulders and show you how amazing you are and I I think that's a strength you know as as a leader, you know, I, I, I think that, you know, even like raising kids or, you know, I don't, I don't have any, but I feel like a lot of parents are great leaders in that it's like, I'm not going to do everything for you, but I'm going to facilitate your success in every area of your life, you know, in all of your interests, I'm going to be there to ensure you have everything you need to succeed. I'm going to make sure that your life is fertile with these amazing things and, you know, and train you well, but I'm not going to, I'm not doing it for you. You know, I think there's a lot of care in watching people succeed, you know, on, on their own, but helping them get there, you know, elevating and inspiring them to get there. So more coaching them rather than doing it for them. Yeah. yeah. And, and actually, I was just, I just read this quote by um, Nelson Mandela. When there is danger, a good leader takes the front line. But when there is celebration, a good leader stays in the back room. Mm-hmm. Which I think is, is also really beautiful and connected to the to this topic. And on the same topic, before we go to Project Athena, 
how can we promote this care culture? How can we inspire more leaders and organizations to, to be more caring, to look after their people, to create a culture where we put all the elephants in the room, we talk about things, we create this trust and all the beautiful things that you shared from this teamwork framework. How can we promote this care culture, Robin? Yeah, it, and that's what it is. It's definitely, you know, it's a culture. It's a cultural thing. Um, and I think it really starts with how people are, are, are seen and how they're incentivized and how, you know, it starts from also the top of the organization. Because if people are continuously promoted because of just their own personal, I sold more, I was more competitive, uh, you know, I, 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 if there's, if there's all these eyes involved with, with your, with your promotion and getting to the next level, you train people how to be right. I mean, so if, if part of your organization is, is you're going to be rewarded based on how many people that have worked for you have gotten promoted, not how many times you've gotten promoted, but how many people who, who have worked for you have moved on to amazing things? And, and when you create that kind of culture where it truly is this, um, it's about service to others and it's about we and not me, <laughs> then that changes everything. And, and like when, when it's not about who gets the credit, you know, and it's only about the customers and the people that you serve getting the results. And, you know, when there's like, a genuine and deep value of everyone's background and skills and strength and culture. And, and it's not hierarchy based and it's like, Hey, you're bringing this, I'm bringing that, you know, it's when it's this kind of environment where it's a, it's a potluck of all of our strengths and talents and skills. And everyone is expected to bring them forward regardless of your rank, you know, and, and when it's, you know, performance instead of pride, you know, that's, that's, you know, a culture that you want to be a part of. But I do see it so often where, you know, organizations are so individual based and and not recognizing, you know, a great leader who may not even want to move up in the organization, but but gets their thrill from elevating and inspiring everyone around them, you know, to to continue to to move forward. I mean, I hope there's more organizations that start to to see that and and you know, kind of reward those people, you know, for, for creating a we thinking culture. Yeah, I think, uh, I don't remember how, how he called it, but we had a guest, uh, Winston Ben Clements, and he was talking about this care ambassadors and care champions. Mm. Um, and it's not always the guy on the top, right? It's not the manager. Like there's some great managers and leaders and executives, but sometimes it's the, the janitor Joe, right? Who's always positive, who always knows how to ask the right question. So maybe this is what you're also talking about. How can we embrace and, and, and celebrate these care ambassadors in our organization so we can multiply it and we can create this culture, right? Yeah, so. no, I think that's a great, that's a great point, you know, and, and that's part of like valuing what everybody brings, regardless of what it says on your business card. You know, it, it could be the person that's that's putting your lunch on your plate that, you know, that is your go to person when you need to talk to somebody. Um, you know, that's part of what's making your company great. But, yeah, I think that's that's a really, really cool point is, you know, let's look at the, you know, not just the dollar signs, you know, of, of you know, because I know a lot like a lot of salespeople, of course, you know, they get they get all the kudos and but. The, you know, the best of them looks over their shoulder and says, look at, look at how I got here and gives away the credit to all of those people that were in that, that circle that elevated and inspired them, you know, and that's how this, this whole positive culture kind of keeps spiraling up is when everyone's like, no, it wasn't me. It was that awesome person that helped me get here. I mean, if everyone felt and, and spoke, you know, that way, I mean, I think, You'd have an, you know, an amazing culture, but it does, you train people how to be in your organization, you know? And so it's, it's gotta be, you know, something that is rewarded. I, yeah. Right. And it comes by leading by example. And, and when you're talking about this type of culture where 
those people celebrated. It reminds me about this famous story about John Kennedy visiting the NASA headquarters after he announced this big vision, this big mission that the United States is going to put a man on the moon within the end of the decade. And he went, he visited NASA, he's talking to people, he's a very charming guy, talks to everybody, and he meets this janitor. And he goes to him and says, Hi, my name is John. What do you do? Oh, Mr. President, I'm helping to put a man on the moon. That's cool. Yeah. He's not cleaning. He's part of the bigger vision, a bigger picture. He's passionate. He's excited. But this is because somebody recognized his part of the whole journey. Exactly. So he's feeling passion. Right. Yep. And when everyone shares that, like that higher sense of purpose, you know, but that's a perfect example. You know, he wasn't, he wasn't cleaning floors. He was helping put somebody on the moon, you know, and, and that, you know, that came from the, the highest levels, you know, that creating that sense of purpose in everyone in that organization. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, it, it, it's like a story from the sixties. Keep inspiring people. Right. Yeah. And, and I wonder if you, if you, from your experience and from, from your work with many of the world's leading organizations, if you, if you actually can think of any example of a leader, somebody you met, or maybe like a, specific story of somebody who, who who's really a caring leader, who's really living by example. He's not doing it for the money. He's not doing it for the price. It's just natural for them. And, and if you can share that, there's a lot of leaders listening to this podcast that might eventually get inspired to, to follow the example. I mean, I, I actually do meet tons and tons of, of, uh, of people doing this and I always know when I'm a part of a, an amazing culture because it's it's really cool because the room is just electric, you know, with everyone just so thrilled to be there, so thrilled to see each other, so thrilled to be a part of it. Um, I don't get to spend lots and lots of time in any one spot, but I'll tell you one story that just came to mind as you were talking about that. And um, when we first started um, Project Athena, where we help survivors live an adventurous dream as part of the recovery, one of the first survivors that we took on a big adventure um, was a breast cancer survivor named um, Sarah Jones. And it was, it was crazy because we took her to the jungles of Costa Rica to do a six day ultra run. She was in the middle of her chemo. Like this girl's off the hook. Like she's amazing. She's a firefighter. Um, and, and she was still on chemo and she, she ran like the first day 30 miles with us like through the jungles of of you know of Costa Rica and she you know her arm swelled up she had lymphedema she she you know had had was struggling when she got on that first day and she said you know what I'm gonna I'm gonna you know be on your crew now you know for for the the next few days and I will never forget this girl who had had um, had already had a partial mastectomy. She already had one breast removed. She was bald. She had her big sleeve on and it could have been for her like, you know, I have cancer and, and therefore I have kind of earned the right, which she had <laughs> to rest in my tent and, you know, and, and keep to myself and, and recover. And I'm telling you what, that girl for the rest of the, the race, she woke up every single morning early to make sure that all of us had coffee and brought our breakfast to our tent and then made sure she got out on the course and cheered us on. And when we came in at night, she would take all our clothes and come to the shower with us and make sure that we had everything we needed and get our food. And we were just blown away by this human being, you know, that we were there to facilitate her dream. And she ended up leading us like being the person that, that was facilitating our dream. And, and, you know, to this day, like, I, um, I think about her when I think about like, what real, um, what real leadership is, you know, and, and mm. what, what giving is and, and the unselfishness you know, like it was just whatever it took to make the people around her smile 
and help them have a better day while she knew she was slowly not making it. And we, mm. we lost her in 2014, but, um, you know, it, I, I clear as day. I remember the, I remember her at the finish line every single day as though we were the rock stars and all along she was a rock star, but she didn't, she didn't even know it. You know, she didn't even realize it because that was just who she was. Wow. Robin, I, I gotta say, I have my, my eyes wet. It's just such a, such a story. Um, thank you for sharing with us that these are the real, these are the real leaders. This is what we're talking about. These are the people who. <laughs> this is actually her. This is was an ad um, like for Jones Soda. This was a Jones Soda label. Mm. This is when she was bald, and this artist took this amazing picture of her, like as though she's in a start line at the blocks, you know, like a track stance. Mm. And um, you know, so this is in my wow, it's in my kitchen. Will always, will always be. But I um I uh, every day I'm always like, what would Sarah do? Just, you know, because I know whatever she would do is is the right thing and the, the best thing. Wow. Tell me more about Project Katina. Why did you guys start this? What is the scope of work and, and what is the focus that you have with it? So um, Project Athena happened. Um, I started having my hips replaced in 2008-ish. Uh, <laughs> and... Uh, I've had six hip replacements. Don't even get me started. Wow. Okay. <laughs> a bunch of failed, some cups. Um, but um, after my first one, I knew I wasn't going to be like, you know, adventure racing at the top of my, my game anymore. And so, um, but we still had all these like cool sponsors that were, you know, still engaged. And I was like, okay, what, what can, what can I and my other semi-broken adventure racer friends do with <laughs> the sort of the background experience that we have and maybe in a way that, that doesn't look cool for other people. And, you know, we all just know the power of amazing and inspiring yourself, you know, cause we had done it for so many years in these races. We were like, what if we help survivors of medical or traumatic setbacks um, like live an adventurous dream as part of their recovery, like to just show them how amazing and badass they are, you know, after a huge setback in their lives. And, you know, so it's, we, we, we set out to be like, we're not just going to like have them walk some, a 5k, not that that's not good enough. You know, that's fantastic. You know, if, if what you did three months ago was just walk to the mailbox, back, you know, like that's, that's huge. But um, we're like, no, we're doing huge, hairy, ridiculous, ludicrous endurance things with, with these survivors so that, the, you know, it's, it's their big, huge comeback party. And it's not only like, not only are they doing something that, that they never imagined they do, they're doing something that everyone they know would never do. <laughs> you know, and they're a survivor. Of, of, you know, of something pretty traumatic. And so it's their turn to take the care that they had received over however many years and let everyone who was worried about them, who loves them know, like, I'm back. And I'm, you know, I'm not just back, but I'm a complete badass. And so it's, it's amazing the transformation that happens for these, for these people. Like when, when they just, they know that um, their family doesn't have to worry. Their their kids don't have to worry about them. And and one story that like that cracks me up is that we had a breast cancer survivor who um, whose kids, you know, had slowly like started helping her more and more, and were worrying about her more and more. And and you know, they were like, "Mom, what what can I do? What do you need?" And and she hated that because they were, you know, were young kids and she didn't want them to have to be, you know, worrying about her and, and, you know, but they were, and they attended to her and, and she came and, um, and did a, a kayak and bike ride 120 miles with us from Key Largo to Key West down all the Florida Keys. And, uh, which is a huge, hairy, like adventure where you're kayaking and, and riding like 40 miles a day. And, um, and she said the best moment 
happened not from anybody's words, but she said, I got home, I got to the airport and the bag started coming out around the carousel. And she, she said, I kind of stood back because I just knew that my kids were, you know, my kids were going to jump on it. My kids were going to grab them. You know, she kind of went back into her home life mode where the, the kids helped her do everything. That was hard. And she said, I watched my bag go around and watched my bag go around again. And she said, I just had the biggest smile on my face because the kids knew I didn't need any help. And wow. It was like, that was the best moment of my life. Like the kids knew their mom was not going to need their help anymore because she was back, you know, and, and better than ever. And so it's like, it's like, I didn't even say a word to him. I just stood there and smiled and watched my bags go around. <laughs> Cause it just, wow. so happy, you know, that, but like people, people leave like, um, just feeling, um, you know, not only did they get their, their, their old self, you know, they're, they're just now the best of what they're capable of being, um, you know, and, and so they go home with so much confidence, like just so much confidence for all of the six months of training, completing this adventure, meeting all these amazing people who, who, um, you know, in some cases they were able to help, you know, it's a lot of people come on our adventures as fundraisers, you know, that don't have a setback themselves. And it's funny because they all think that they're going to be helping the survivors. Like they're all excited. They're going to help the survivors, you know, on these adventures. And it's so cool because at least half the time it's the survivors that end up helping the fundraisers. <laughs> and it just makes, makes them so happy. Like, to put on an extra backpack or to like to sing with someone or laugh with them or hold their hand or like to finally be in that position where I get to take care of somebody else. I'm not the one, you know, I'm not the one anymore that everyone is looking at and staring at and feeling sad for and wondering about like, I'm the helper now. And, you know, that's part of the experience, you know, is they just train so hard and they, you know, they just want this moment. They want this comeback so bad. And uh, it's neat. It's neat to be able to to provide it for them. So, so we take survivors and fundraisers on um, four or five big endurance adventures per year. So we do a, uh, we do a 50 mile hike up the coast of San Diego over two days. And we do a uh, rim to rim to rim crossing in the Grand Canyon where we, we don't just like go into the Grand Canyon and camp. We go down into it, hike all the way across it and all the way out in one day and then sleep for a few hours and do it again the next day and go back. So, you know, it's a thing that like, even like ultra hikers and ultra runners, you know, do as their big, big event. And we do a, um, a 45 mile through hike across Zion national park over two days. And then we do that 120 mile kayak and bike ride from Key Largo to Key West. And the cool thing about it is that we all do it together as one big team, whether it's, you know, 12 people or 35 people or 40 people, um, we all stay together and wow. so we kind of live what I talk about in my presentations. Like we do it as one big team. So our strength is collective. Our energy is collective. Um, you know, when someone is struggling, someone else goes back and helps whether it's, whether it's just talking to them or singing together or literally towing somebody or literally, you know, we, we actually come up when we're, when we're cycling, we come up and put our hand on someone's lower back and kind of just push them, get next to them, push them up the hills. Um, but it's, uh, it's really becomes a family. Like it's amazing to be on a team like that. Like that is just truly there for each other. It's a totally I love different the I love the fact that you bring them together and it's not just like to, oh, that's, let's take care of you. You actually put them in these extreme adventures, extreme experiences, or there's no space for any part of the victim mentality to, to show up. They just, they just come back home as completely transformed, like person, the, the superhero version, if you, if you may. And, and I would imagine they're not com never coming back. Because now you have, they have, and I would assume they're never coming back to this to this place of like even if they've no. been in this more like victim mentality. Yeah, 
it's, it's so like cool to, i mean it's literally 180 degree like they came as as people that that everyone was taking care of for you know sometimes for years you know and then they go home as like as an athena that's why it's called project athena like <laughs> they go home as like this incredible warrior goddess <laughs> You know that and the cool thing is like a lot of them love to pay it forward so so they'll go home and they'll like go back into their cancer survivor group or their pts group or whatever it is and and they'll be like hey let's all get together in in norfolk in you know in may and go run this half marathon together and you know so they start doing their own little adventures with other people that need this kind of comeback experience and so it just kind of grows these really cool legs where you know then they get to be the person to to show other people how strong they are and you know that's that's the joy in it for me is is you know watching other people realize how strong they are i mean they were already strong battling whatever they were battling but this is this is a whole different um this is a whole different self self-reliance that they that they had probably been missing for however long like you know for them to to go from being the the sick person to the the family badass <laughs> it's just it's the best it sounds amazing how could people get involved either if they're seeking help as a survivor or if they want to support as a volunteer somehow to to be part of the project so the website is projectathena.org so it's like you know the goddess athena so it's projectathena.org and um our volunteers basically are the people that that come raise money and come on the adventures with us so um and we take probably each group has about a, is comprised of about a third survivors and two-thirds fundraisers and um and then we all just go together and everyone gets the same training plan so you're training the four months on our training plan with the survivors and then you do the adventure right alongside the survivors so the only way that you would know the difference between who's a survivor and who's a fundraiser is just the color of the shirt the, the survivors wear orange shirts fundraisers wear white shirts my team wears this blue shirt <laughs> and uh and and we're all just equal we're all just equal people on this on this journey you know trying to get everybody across the finish line together guys everyone who's listening make sure to check out projectcatina.org uh, get in touch and see how you can get involved robin i want to ask you another question since the last uh, 13 14 months the the whole world has been changed many organizations many people you know, started working from home. There have been some heavy restrictions and lockdowns. And and now we start to see the effects that has been compounding from all this. And, and different studies are showing the effects that this pandemic has had on our mental health. So so I, I wanted from you as somebody who's, uh, who's an expert in endurance and resilience to, to maybe share some advice for people who are struggling right now Maybe somebody's sitting home listening to this podcast. What would be your advice, your your message to people who are struggling to handle these lockdowns, these restrictions, this craziness and uncertainty? Yeah, it's been it's been nuts, hasn't it? I mean, it's, just been, it's been you know in 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 some ways good because so many people have have picked up talents and skills that they didn't have before. But I think. I think pretty early on the people that um, that are going to come out of this really well realize something that I've always kind of thought, which is that that none of us are ever going to be defined by our setbacks. We're going to be defined by our comebacks. And so, what does that comeback look like? You know, and 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 focusing on that like saying, okay, if I do this today, how is that going to manifest itself in, in a better life, a better business, something better for my family, whatever that is, you know, what can I do today right now to, to prepare for my big comeback? Because it's coming, 
you know, there's, this is, is going to end and there, the light at the end of the tunnel isn't a train, <laughs> but, but it's about like, you know, where, where is your focus? Cause it's easy to get kind of depressed. And, um, I've also always thought that like depression is often from a lack of action, you know, a lack of, of momentum, you know, of some kind, you know, it's not that there's something wrong with you. It's that you haven't found your thing, like your next thing. And I'm always kind of like, you got to keep searching, you know, till you find the thing that wakes you up at night to dream. And so like, you know, when you've got your heart and mind wrapped around something that you almost can't sleep, you know, that you're like, Oh, I want to do this. Like I, Oh, I have to do this. This is like, this is burning in my soul, whatever that may be. That's your next business, a volunteer project, you know, something that's in your heart and soul. And, and so I think, I think when people went into quarantine, when they kind of locked down, they kind of locked down their hearts and minds too, in some cases. And so it's time to find the thing, you know, whatever that thing that is just so exciting to you that it's the first thing you think about when you, when you wake up and, and your drive, you know, during the day and the thing that you do one small move towards every single day. And if you haven't found that thing, you've got to keep looking. You have to look under every rock. You have to search. Like, is it? Is it? I want to volunteer with animals. Is it? You know, I, I want to. I want to help. Um, you know, I want to help people who can't speak English. You know, learn English or you know whatever it is. Um, I want to run that marathon I never ran. Like, keep digging. You know, till you find your thing, and then take the small steps every day. Because there's a lot of of courage, and not just the huge hairy leaps. There's, I think the more important kind of courage lies in the tiny things that you do every day, the little tiny things that you do every day to take that next step forward, you know, towards, towards your dream. So, you know, first of all, realize I'm going to define myself by my comeback. And what does that look like? What is my comeback? You know, and then also you got to kind of drag yourself out of that depressed place by saying, you know, I'm working on my, my thing, whatever my next thing is, that's, that is where I'm headed and setting your heart and mind and your focus on the thing. And, um, you know, I, str I struggled with that this year too. Like, God, what's my thing? Like, there's no races, uh, like project Athena's like, it's uh, <laughs> like, what's my thing right now? And, um, you know, it was, it was hard. It was hard for a few mm -hmm. months, but, but like every day I was just searching, 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 searching. And, um, and you know, it's, I, I feel like I, I found it in part, but I'm, and I, and I'm going to keep searching too, but I decided I want to start an animal sanctuary. So that's, you know, that's my next, my next beautiful is to, yeah, is to train. I mean, and, and not only just provide them a home, but I also want to, you know, train rescue dogs for dog sports and, and, you know, not just house them and give them a food bowl and a, and a roof, but like to, to, show them how awesome they are. <laughs> I was like, what I did with Project Athena, I want to do, you know, I also want to do for, for animals. So, um, you know, that's exciting. That's exciting. Two, two major ports I got from this last uh, answer of yours. One is you got to start taking action, mm. small steps, but instead of overthinking, what is something small I can start doing? And at the second point, which I think is big is, how can I focus my energy and attention on giving and creating and building? So it's not, I'm not in my head, but I'm focused on, on making the lives of somebody else better. Uh, so I'm just going to keep it here. I'm going to ask you the last question before we wrap up this uh, beautiful episode. And it is, Robin, what is your vision for a better future? How do you see the future 12, 24 months from now in your kind of a, dream bodice dream scenario well like for the world yes for the world for the environment for everything um i i mean i think one way that kind of we all fall short or it seems like a lot of the at least in, in america like is falling short right now is um seeing people in in groups instead of seeing them as individuals. And I think that like in, in my perfect world, people would find like every time they met someone, 
or even someone that they've been friends with for a long time, like they would find the, there's a nugget of, of good in everybody, you know, and there's a nugget of something you can connect to in everybody and to just discount people because they're that group or that's their politics or that's their this or they're this religion or, you know, whatever it is. And, and, um, you know, I find myself like at, at the fire station doing that a lot. Like I love, like genuinely love every single person at station and we're all different as, as could possibly be. But with each person, I have this little thing that I found that I truly deeply connect with them on. And, you know, and in that way I can move from person to person to person and be completely happy and not label them or dislike them because of this or that. But I mean, in my perfect world, if I had a perfect world, um, I would, I would just say like, find that, that nugget of goodness in, in everyone you meet, you know, come in with that positivity. Like I'm going to love something about this person. And can you imagine if everybody did that? Amen. Thank you so much, Robin, for this beautiful episode. Just if you can share with the audience, where could people find you, connect with you if they want to hire you as a speaker on their event or potentially get in touch with Project Katina, where could they find you? Um, let's see. Prop, I think they can get everything um, at robinbenincasa.com. And it's Robin with a Y. So R-O-B-Y-N and then B-E-N-I-N-C-A-S-A. Like Ben in the house, Casa Spanish. <laughs> ben in the house. <laughs> so uh, yeah, robinbenincasa.com or projectathena.org. Well, thank you so much, uh, Robin, for being with us, for sharing your lessons to the leaders who care and uh, keep inspiring. Keep on doing what you're doing because what you're doing is really creating a huge ripple effect and huge positive impact. It's inspiring us and yeah, thank you so much for, for being with us and, and sharing your learnings. Thanks, Doyen. You're awesome. Thanks for having me um, having me uh, as your teammate today. It is absolutely our pleasure, Robin. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening, and we hope you enjoyed this episode. Find out more about the leaders who care across the main social media channels and help us spread the care culture in your own community. First, by taking care of yourself and then of others around you. It all starts with one person, one act of kindness. What is one thing you can do today to make your environment better? Stay inspired and stay caring. See you next time.